That's good. All right. Hey, amazing to be here, isn't it? So, hey, we just want to point out Nick's sister is here, Corinna. Yeah. It's good to have Corinna here. So if anybody ever wants to come over to my house, I have lots of embarrassing photos and pictures and videos of Nick and Corinna, actually, when we lived in China together. So it was a lot of fun. Also, good to see Justin. So, yeah. And uh, John, right? Is it John? Yeah, that's your name? Okay. The Lord told me. <laughs> actually, she told me. <laughs> oh, gosh. Hey, uh, let's stand up. Just a change. Yeah, I love uh, being here with you guys because it's an opportunity uh, to grow in the Word, but also to grow in, in relationship, right? So like, if you notice that the Bible is a lot about like us and God, but there's very few times that a person is alone with God, right? Like you're reading the Gospels and, you know, Jesus goes alone for a few moments to be alone with God. So we have our personal time with God. But Jesus was always with his disciples. You know, you go back further in the Old Testament, and you see that often that the prophets were uh, with people preaching. Uh, Samuel had a school of prophets. He was teaching prophets. I mean, often you see that they were together. So we are growing together, and it is amazing how much like each one of us can help each other grow towards God. Right? And I find myself uh, needing you, and I think you find yourself needing each other often. So it's amazing. Uh, let's turn our Bibles. Um, <laughs> i got to think where I want to go. Let's just go to 1 Peter chapter 1. I lost my tablet, so I'm trying to use my phone now. So I pulled an Andrew. Andrew always loses his tablet. <laughs> First Peter chapter, chapter 1. Remember a couple weeks ago we, we spoke about genuine faith? How many of you guys remember that? It was a really good message, actually. I, I, I enjoyed it, but it wasn't recorded because I don't think... Oh, our computer crashed that day. That's what was going on. Yeah, so it was fun. Really, it was an amazing message, and just really want to kind of review this verse. First Peter chapter 1, verse 7. It says, being the genuineness of your faith, being much more precious than gold, that per perishes, though it is tested by fire, may it be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And uh, a couple weeks ago, we were you know, speaking about this verse, and we talked about how much your faith has value. Isn't that amazing? Your faith has value. And the value of your faith uh, doesn't come because of how amazing your faith is, but we said it often comes because of the trouble we go through. <laughs> so it just teaches us a new value system of our trouble. So this is amazing. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for everybody here. We thank you for this verse here and our faith being genuine and we just thank you, we praise you, and let, let your word continue to speak as it has through the announcements and the prayer and through the worship and through the communion. Just continue to speak to us, humble us, edify us, help us to leave this place today with a little skip in our step. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, you may be seated.
Yeah, we said a couple weeks ago that our, our faith has value, and if you haven't realized that your faith has value, I want to tell it to you again, that your faith has value. And um, we, watched a, <laughs> we watched a little cartoon yesterday with Elias about, about Bitcoin. It was Bitcoin and the Beast. It was kind of funny. It was t- teaching kids about Bitcoin and, and dollars and all this other stuff. It was kind of funny. Um, but the whole discussion was, is what's more valuable, Bitcoin or, 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 or greenbacks? You know, are they, which, one, which one's more valuable? And it was like an argument, and you know, we're not here to talk about that. But the point is, is like these things have value because of how much work goes into them, right? Like if it's valuable, it's because so much work has gone into the dollar or the Bitcoin or, or whatever. And if we translate that into our faith, what has more valuable, what has more value is our faith. Why? Because of how much work has gone into it. And here's the thing that we said. We said that maybe you have not put a lot of work into your faith. And that could be true. Right? Maybe we don't give it. I mean, there's a lot of people that are not giving their faith a lot of work out there. But beyond the work they put into it, Christ has put so much work into it. Right? And that is the foundation, and we're going to talk about today, that is the cornerstone of our faith. It's not what I have done, but what Christ has done. And we could actually look at this and we could say, well, is my faith genuine or or not? Because we talk about the genuineness of our faith that led us to Hebrews 11 and our faith heroes. And we read about all the sacrifices that they did. And we're like encouraged by it, right? Right? And then it comes time for me to make a sacrifice, and I very quickly say no, (laughs) because it's crazy. Like, honestly, if we start thinking about the sacrifices that these men and women did, we learned, um, it was that Thursday night, I believe, they made a lot of sacrifices. If we learn about these sacrifices, like, I, I am not that crazy, I'm not that radical, I'm not that committed to God. So is my faith genuine? And we could be struggling with that question. And I was thinking about this, that, you know, the answer could be that that is not who I am. And I can be okay with that. I can be okay with that in my heart. Because, and I was thinking about it this way, and we're going to turn to two other passages, and there's two stories in the gospel where it says that Christ was amazed like, what, what amazes God is faith. And you're going to see this two times in the Bible. So let's actually turn there. Let's turn to the first one. We're going to read both stories, and then we'll kind of address it uh, individually. The first one is in Luke chapter, chapter 7. And again, the, the idea here is, did I just say that? <laughs> Yes, idea. <laughs> the idea here is, is that our faith can increase. And what is the condition for our faith to increase? And I don't care who we are. Maybe we're one of those people who have great faith, like those that are in Hebrews chapter 11. But either way, we still have need for our faith to be increased. Or maybe we find ourselves and we, we would label ourselves as having weak faith. And we come, but we come in weakness, or we come and we don't come often, and we come and we come with a lot of sin, a lot of baggage, a lot of uh, stuff that is on our, our shoulder, and we can say, that is who I am. But either, doesn't matter who we are, 
we still have need of our faith to increase. And in both cases, we're going to find that from these two stories, there is a right and a wrong way to have our hearts. There's a right and a wrong way to have our heart. The first one is a Roman centurion, right? In Luke chapter 7, and we're going to see that Jesus is amazed. Verse 9, it says, When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. That's that word, that he was amazed at him. And he turned around and said to the crowd that followed him, I say to you, I have not found such great faith, not even in Israel. You, know, you go through the Bible, actually. How many times has God marveled at an Israelite's faith? Does anybody know, actually? It's like kind of a half question. Yeah, I don't think actually ever in the gospel Jesus says that I marveled at your faith. It's always somebody who is an outcast. It's really amazing. So right there it says that Jesus is marveled. He is amazed. The second one, if we can turn to our... And you can kind of put your finger there or a little bookmark because we're going to be turning back and forth to both of these passages. The second one is in Mark chapter 6, verse 6. Very short verse. But it very simply says, and he marveled. He was amazed. He was astonished because of their unbelief. Isn't that, isn't that crazy? You know, who is, like in my notes I have, the first one is a Roman centurion. He is the outsider. Like he should not be the one who is found with faith. The second one is actually, who is it? Anybody know Mark chapter 6? Who is he talking to? Not only is it Israel, but it's his hometown. It's those that have seen him the most. And it says that they... He was amazed that they had that they were that because of their unbelief. This this word marveled here. This amazement it means two things. Number one, it means that they there was astonishment or amazement, uh, either in a critical way. So in Mark chapter six, we see that that he is astonished, he is amazed, but it's more directed in a critical way towards the people of his hometown. Because of their unbelief. Or the second way that it could be is that they are astonished, they are amazed. And as we see in Luke chapter 7, it is, to, it is there and it has uh, admiration. That actually Jesus is admiring this Roman guard because of his, his, his faith. And in Mark chapter 6, he is astonished, he is amazed because of his own people and their lack of faith. Isn't that amazing? But I find that in our lives that we can often go between one or the other, right? And we need, if we look at these two passages and we kind of very quickly dissect these two stories, we're going to find that in our life it is not how amazing we are, but it's the condition of our hearts. And that it's, it's, it is amazing. Like I'm astonished when, I'm, when I was reading this that the condition of the hearts of this Roman guard was rightly related to God, yet Jesus' own countrymen were not. Yet they were careful what they ate. 
They obeyed the Sabbath. They did this. They did that. Yet the condition of their hearts was so far from God. And we need to be careful that in our own lives that we don't fall into that trap. So since we're in Mark chapter 6, let's stay there. So like most stories, when we see the stories of Jesus, it always starts out with him preaching and him doing an amazing miracle. And that's what we see in Mark chapter 6. He is preaching. And let's read verse 2. Mark 6 verse 2. And it says, And when the Sabbath had come, he began to teach in the synagogue. All right, God is, Jesus is teaching. And many hearing his words were astonished. This is, this, is like, this is like the same kind of adjective that is being used to describe the, the, the people, that, they, that Jesus was astonished or amazed by their lack of faith. The people were actually, there is amazement in their own hearts because of the sayings that he had, such wisdom. And listen to what they said. It says, where did this man get these things? And what wisdom is this which is given to him? And such mighty works and are performed by his hands. Three things we see that they are confessing with their own mouth. That he has knowledge, that he has wisdom, and he has mighty works. Not only did he know the scripture, because on the Sabbath, when you would get up to talk about, you know, in Jewish culture, you wouldn't just sit there and like give, you know, orate a message like we do today in churches. But they would read... And then there would be like a lot of reading. Could you imagine just like sitting here listening to somebody like read the Bible for like 20, 30 minutes? That's what, the, that's what the synagogue was like. They would read a long passage and there would be a little explanation and that's kind of it. That's what he would do. So he had the knowledge, right? He had the knowledge, but then where he applied the knowledge, that's what wisdom is. Wisdom is applied knowledge that he could apply it in such a way, and they were amazed. They were astonished. Isn't that awesome? But I say that to say this, that the people of this world, do they not hear the name Jesus? Do they not know what we believe in some form or fashion? We go out there, they have an understanding of the church in the United States especially, Generally, we are not quiet about our beliefs. You know, we are out, I mean, our church, ourselves, we are out there and we are proclaiming the gospel. We are praying for people. There's, a, there's TV, there's podcasts, there's the internet. Uh, Jesus is everywhere in the United States. And people hear. And they are astonished. I mean, could you imagine you know, having Gary come up here and preaching the word of God, we would be astonished. But not only that, we see the work of God. I mean, and, you know, and this is like something that we could talk about more sometime, but the work, you know, God's hand is moving today. We're looking like in a biblical context and we're trying to see him like heal people or take out, or cast out demons or to do this or that. But that's not the only way that God moves. God moves in many ways. And he often did these things to give credentials to his own testimony, to his own word. But as we see and as we walk and we could tell story after story in our own church about how God has moved and what God has done. 
And I, can, I, I say those to say that God's hand is here. And that is testimony. But what, what happens when we see these things and we hear these things or we hear a message preached? We should be astonished. But Mark chapter 3 reveals the true condition of their heart because their astonishment wasn't really sourced in his knowledge. It wasn't really sourced in his wisdom. It wasn't really sourced in the amazing miracles that he did. But it was from one simple thing. Mark 6 verse 3 says, Is this not the carpenter? (laughs) The son of Mary, the brother of James, Judas, and Simon, are not his sisters here with us? Isn't that amazing? They filtered everything that they heard. They filtered everything that they saw. They filtered every, all the wisdom, all the knowledge, and all the miracles. They filtered that through the lens of, but isn't this a carpenter? Meaning what? They saw him from when he was a baby. They saw his father train him on how to carve wood. Actually, I was reading this morning that actually, I mean, carpenter is a general term. It could mean that he was a a stonemason or he's a blacksmith or he was this or that. But, you know, Josephus points out that there's some sort of evidence in historical that he was making, you know, plows, hand plows. He was making this and that out of wood. He was a carpenter. He was building stuff, you know, shaving the wood down, forming it just right. And he did that and he was taught that by his father. And from, you know, in the Gospels, there's no mention of his father. So we believe that he has passed away and he has taken on the family business. And this is how the people in his hometown understand him. But wait a minute, isn't this the guy who, you know, made our chairs? They didn't make chairs back then, all right, guys, but just application. Isn't this the guy who made our chair, our soup bowls, our, our spoons? Isn't this the guy who made our bookshelves? I mean... Are you kidding? But I, 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 like, you know, computer is exploding. It cannot process what's going on here. Because on one side, I see the hand of God. I hear the words of God. I see the wisdom of God. And on the other side, I see him, you know, just two weeks ago, he was over here sweeping up the, the shavings from the wood. I am not processing it. I don't understand it. And we see the same kind of thing actually happen in the book of Acts when the disciples were preaching and Jesus is gone. And what, what, is, what does it say? That they were preaching and it says that they knew that they had been with Jesus. But they saw that they were simple Galileans. They're simple fishermen. Meaning again, they could not compute the wisdom, the power, the hand of God. Yet there is simplistic nature in their humanity. They could not process it. Why? Because it's all up in their brain, honestly. I mean, oftentimes we can't process the way God does things. And if you live a life of faith, you'll see that happen. You'll see God do some miracles. You'll see God do some amazing things. You'll see his hand in your life. And the only explanation will be God did it. You know, and today, in this, you know, we're having a little meeting after the church for those that want to stay to talk about some events the church is doing, the direction that we're going. You know, but really... It has to be the hand of God. It has to be. But listen, at the very end of that verse, what does it say? Does it say it up there? (laughs) 
They were offended. Yes, they were offended. I like that. Does Jesus offend you? Yeah, even as believers, yeah, I like it. That's what I was like trying to get. Even as believers sometimes, doesn't Jesus offend us? He does, because the things that he says is so radical. You know, but here this is speaking of not people who are believers. They are speaking of people who refuse to have faith in Christ. Like we are, we don't understand, but Christ doesn't really offend us, does he? Look at 2 Peter chapter 2. No, 1 Peter chapter 2. I have it in my notes wrong. 1 Peter chapter 2. Isn't that, isn't that interesting that they could be offended by the words of Jesus? Like, if he said something towards my sin, like, that's an offense, right? Like, I need to be corrected, and usually when somebody speaks into your sin, like, it offends you. Even if they're right, so you get angry at them. But could you imagine, like, Jesus, and he's not saying anything to touch on your sin. He's just saying God's wisdom and God's words. And just through that, there is an offense. Or if, if, you know, somebody gets healed, like I'm on the outside looking, and now that offends me. Does that make any sense? Well, First Peter chapter 2, 7 and 8 kind of enlightens us on what this actually means. It's therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. Isn't that good? He is precious. Do we understand? No. Do we, do we agree all the time? No. But I still believe in God. I have faith in God, so he is precious to me. But to those who are disobedient, other translations translate this differently. To those that are outside, to those who do not believe. Like, it's interesting that the, uh, the I think this is King James, I guess, that the King James says disobedience and the other one says faith. To those who believe, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, disobedient to what? Disobedient to, you know, the Jewish law? Disobedient to the Christian law? Disobedient to the creeds? Disobedient to, we could go down the road. Uh, are they immoral? No, this disobedience isn't pointing to their moral life, but their spiritual condition and how they are relating to God. They're relating to God disobediently because they don't have faith. John chapter 6. What can we do to work, earn the works of God? Jesus says, have faith. Let's continue to read. But those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders have rejected has become the chief cornerstone. A stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, they stumble being disobedient to the word to which that they were appointed. Look at that. What does it mean? Like they, they, Jesus was amazed by their uh, unbelief and that they were offended what happened to Jesus? Jesus became a stumbling block to them. Why? Because he's in the way? Why? Because he's not useful? I mean, that's what, I mean, we talked about value two weeks ago, that our faith has value because it's useful for us. Is, is Jesus is not useful? Like, why is he a stumbling block? Like, how many times have you actually gotten angry at something? You know, or you're, you're walking and you trip into something, you're like, who put that there? And actually, you become angry at this inanimate objects. But actually, you were the idiot who wasn't looking. You know, you're the one who was like completely clueless, and you're looking at your phone, or you're, or you're yelling, talking to somebody, and you run like into a door or something, and you become angry at the door. 
Why? Well, the door didn't do anything. And it's just kind of the same with Jesus. Like, Jesus has the potential in our life to become, and I hate to use this word like this, but useful. And not because we are using him, but because he is the one who changes our life. He is the one who takes me and he turns me into a new creation. He is the one who redeems me. He is the one who saves me. He's the one who gives me value. He's the one who says I'm precious. I mean, we could go on and on. He's, he's the one who says I'm a child of God. He's the one who says that I am an ambassador. He's the one who says I'm a king, I'm a queen. He's the one we keep going through the the promises of God, and what the Bible says about us. Jesus is the one who says these things about us, yet I'm offended by him. A lot of people today are offended by Jesus you know, because of different political stances, and actually now those are not no longer political stances, there are moral stances, and the Bible has something very clear to say uh, against that moral stance, and people hate Jesus because of that. So you were going to stumble because of one thing, like, you know, the door got in the way and you're hitting the door. Like, are you kidding me? Like, I'm going to start screaming at the door, but how, you know, it just doesn't make any sense to me. Like, I can become angry at God because of the one thing that he offends me in, but all the great things that he can do for me in my life. Yet I become offended by him. Next, let's go back to Luke chapter 7, and let's look, at, let's look at the outsider's faith. And we're going to see the condition, right? A little bit of a difference of their hearts. Starting in verse 4 and 5. This is an amazing few verses. It says, so they earnestly, this is from the New Living Translation. It says, so they earnestly begged Jesus to help the man. If anyone deserves your help, he does, they said. Here are the Jews. They're crying out. And this, this guard is sending his servant to beg Jesus to heal his other servants. And the people, the crowd, the Jewish crowd is begging, saying, he deserves it. But listen why. It says, for he loves the Jewish people and even built a synagogue for us. What is the, that simple verse gives us a small insight to the condition of this person's heart. Not because he did something amazing, but two simple things. Number one is that he loved God's people. You know, in application, what does that mean? Like we love the body of Christ. Like you are here, and it doesn't matter how you came in today, you were loved. Why? Because people who are rightly related to God, who have faith and they believe in that Jesus is precious, those are people who also value the people of God. I mean, yes, we love the Jewish, and there's like something to be said there that if we honor and keep the, that covenant promise with, with Abraham that he made, I mean, we'll be blessed. Like, we understand that. But also, look at our church. The person sitting next to you, behind you, in front of you. Like, could you think, like, they are loved? And this is like what he, he loves the people of God. And number two, he loved the house of God. Verse five says so much about this man. He loves God's people and he loves God's house. That's amazing. 
That's amazing. A little glimpse to his heart. And I just want to encourage you, and I think we already do this, right? But we love church. That's why we're here. You know, summer's coming, and we're going to... How, how many are going on vacation? Yeah? And how many of you are missing Sunday church? <laughs> yeah, it's going to happen. I, you know, it, it happens, you know? But on the other side is like, when, when Christ becomes more precious to me, and my faith is increasing, I love the church more. Because what is it doing? It feeds me. It feeds me. And I love God's people more. Why? Because God's people feed me. And all of a sudden, I find myself away from something that is like bringing me death or bringing me a stumbling block or bringing me like sin. Like if I invest too much time in something that is wrong, it's going to produce something that's wrong. But if I learn to love God's people and love God's house, what does it produce? It's going to produce more faith in my life. But then what struck Jesus with, with amazement wasn't what astonished him, what caused him to be in amazement towards this outsider in his faith. It wasn't that he loved God's people. It wasn't that he loved his house. But listen, verse 6 all the way, I believe, through verse 8 says, Then Jesus went with them, and when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you, that you should enter into my roof. Therefore, I do not even think myself worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And my servant do this, and he does it. Isn't that an interesting passage? There's so much that we could dissect there. I love dissecting stuff. But look at it. Like, he, he, he loved, like, he, he, the way he looked at himself in such humility that he considered himself not worthy to even... Like, so we would say it's disrespectful. Like, if you want something, ask me. Like, you can't send somebody else to ask, you know, ask me to do something for you. Like, I want you to come to me. But this soldier understood something that Jesus also understood, and it brought him such amazement that he could send somebody because he realized he himself is unworthy to be in the presence of God and for the presence of God to even be in his own house. One word, very simply, is humility. He was humble. He was a humble man. And he looked at this and he said, Jesus is the one who has the authority. This is amazing. He understood his own humility and he understood governmental authority because he had it. He had governmental authority in, in the army, in the military. And he could say, do this and do that. Go there and, go and, and get this done. Do, and it will be done. He understood that. But here's like the thing that he understood. If, if a government, if the Roman Empire, and as great as it is, had this kind of authority where I could do this and it be done, how much more the hand of God? That's why that statement is so amazing because he didn't lord his authority that he had from the Roman Empire, over this carpenter. Over this 
rabbi over, that had a few Gentiles following him. He, did, he realized that the kingdom of God and its authority is so much greater than the authority of Rome. That's what he understood. And that is exactly why it says that Jesus was amazed. Isn't that amazing? Amazing. <laughs> yeah. That he actually, and it, and it says that he, like that word, remember, it means that he admired the Roman soldier. He admired him. You know, what are some things, and, you know, in closing here, what are some things that we can learn about our faith from these two stories? Uh, number one, we learn from these two stories is it's very important on how we look at God. If we are looking at God in the wrong way, he could either become a stumbling block or precious to me. If I have the wrong view of God like they did in Mark chapter 6, then what happens? You know, Jesus never goes back to Nazareth, does he? He never goes back and does a miracle again ever in his hometown. Why? Because of the way they viewed him. Am I looking for a miracle in my life? <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> but on the other hand, I don't need a miracle. But I view God in such a way that I understand who he is. In the Roman centurion, he understood who Jesus was. He understood the authority. So in our lives, we need to be careful how we view God. You know, we hear things like the man upstairs, the big man upstairs. And he's in charge. We can say it, I understand, because he's in charge, right? And he's looking down. He knows all things. But we could also think of him this way, like he is somebody who's sitting with me at my coffee table. He is somebody who is living in my heart. He is somebody who is, says that he is my father. Uh, he all, it also says in the Bible that he calls us friends. I mean, how do we view Jesus? The Bible tells us how we should view him. And that is the way that we should view him. That he has love in his heart for us. That he has authority in our life. That he is healing. He is a great physician. That he is, the Bible says who God is. And we cannot allow a culture to dictate to us who God is. How can, how can the world tell us who Jesus is? No, it can't. It has to come through the Word of God. It has to come also through a revelation in my own walk with Him. Because each moment that I realize a new Bible verse and it becomes more real to me, what happens in my life? He becomes different to me. He becomes more personal. He, he's revealed to me in a different way. But the Bible has to interpret who God is. Don't let your feelings, don't let your emotions interpret who God is. Because that is so easy. I could have a bad day, right? I could say, God is against me. You know what? I mean, you got a fender bender, car broken into, stuff stolen. It's a sign, right, that God is against you. Is that right? No, it's not, you know. <laughs> I'm using the wrong person here. <laughs> no, I mean, yeah, he's not against you. Like, he is for you. 
bad things happen, that doesn't mean like he, God is coming against you because you understand that how God values you and you're not allowing your bad circumstances to interpret your, your emotions and who God is. We allow God to do that. Number two, that we realize our need for God. See, in Mark 6, they never had a need for God. Even though he was doing some miracles and he was speaking wisdom and doing something amazing, their need for God was never revealed. They were so proud. This, I mean, he's the guy who, who fixes the stuff in my house. That's all he is. That's it. That's all he is to me. I don't need him except to fix my chairs. I don't need him. I don't need his word. I don't need his miracle. But the Roman soldier who had no need of anything, right? He had servants, which means there was authority, which means there was money. He had no need. Yet, he says, I am not even worthy. He realized that need wasn't determined by the outside, but what was going on in his own heart. That means that I could be in a great place of wealth or I could be in a great place of, of plenty, yet I still could be in such great need of Jesus. Let us today understand that we have great need of Jesus. And the last one, and we see this in 1 Peter, that we read that already in chapter 2, I believe verse 8. That because of these first two things, these first two things are a view of God and a view of ourself, right? Like he, who God is and who we are. That's those first two points on faith. And that reveals a lot. But we can't stop. We can't stop with a right view of God and a right view of self. It can't end there. It has to go on to like a call. Like we call it a call to action. It has to lead to action. And in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 8, what does it say? It says that Jesus Christ becomes our cornerstone. So I'm a carpenter, you know. So uh, it is very important to, when you're building something that you have a frame of reference, right? So if I were to build a wall in your house, I am, I am building the wall, but I am pulling from a frame of reference. You know, maybe I'm measuring to build this wall from this wall over here, and I know how far to make it. I can't just build it up with my own idea. I just want to slap it here and eyeball it and make sure it's okay. It's going to be something bigger. You know, I need to pull from something. That's what a cornerstone is. We've heard these kind of messages before, that a cornerstone sets the foundation and the angles that the house is going to be built. It is the same thing for us. That if I have Christ in my life and he is my cornerstone, what does that tell me? It tells me everything. That's the whole point of a cornerstone. In, in a house, it tells me where the plumbing is going. It's telling me where the electrical is going. It tells me where my HVAC is going. It tells me where my bedroom is, my bathroom, my kitchen, you know, my game room, my this, my that. It tells me everything. And without the cornerstone, what do I have? I have absolutely nothing. So if I don't follow through with the right view of God and the right view of myself and make Christ my cornerstone, then I'm actually going to know nothing. 
and then he still becomes a, a stumbling block. But when Christ is our cornerstone, does that mean we have the answers and I, I can look at a blueprint of my life and know exactly how everything is going to plan out? No. But I have a Savior who paid for my sins, who loves me, and no matter what happens in the 70 years that I have on earth, I will be in heaven one day and I will be with him. The Bible says that I go to prepare a place for you. And if, I were, if it wasn't true, I, wouldn't, I would tell you that it's not true. I'm preparing you a house. Why? Because I love you. You're my ch children. Uh, I have a plan for you. And if things don't work out the way you want them to work out here on earth, they're going to be rights in heaven because I am your father. I am your king. I am the supreme authority. But our hope is for more than just what's in heaven, right? I mean, I'm excited to go to heaven someday. But I'm not 70 or 80 or 90 yet. I'm not old. I don't plan on dying anytime soon. So, what does that mean for me here? And we could read verses like Jeremiah 29, 11, right? I know my thoughts towards you. And Jesus tells me those thoughts and what they are and my, his plans and how they are for me. That God actually has a plan for me here on this earth, meaning that if I follow him... If I have faith, and we can continue to read more verses, the faith of a mustard seed. You know, Matthew chapter 6, I believe, right? I mean, if we have these kind of little things, what happens with it is that God brings us into a place where he reveals his plan for us. And sometimes we are there in suffering, yet God reveals his faithfulness. But the whole point is, is Jesus Christ. Like, if I want my faith to increase, it doesn't increase on my own two feet. It doesn't, it doesn't increase through my own goodwill. It doesn't increase through my own understanding. It doesn't increase through my own faith or my good works. It increases on the very foundation of Jesus Christ. And that's what Mark chapter 6, that's what they did not understand. They just thought, hey, he's a carpenter. And he's more than that, isn't he? It's so much fun. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this message. We think of who you are, what you're doing, and what you're saying today. And we want our faith to increase. And I think we all can stand here and we can say that our faith is not what it should be. But it can grow because of how we view you how we view ourselves, and we have placed you right at the corner. I want to be like David or Moses. When they faced trouble, they ran quickly to their knees. And they said, what, what, what do you want me to do, Lord? Korah came against Moses. Moses went to his knees and prayed. David would go to battle. Before he went to battle, he'd run to his knees and prayed and ask, Lord, what do you want us to do? Joshua, before going into Jericho, asked, Lord, what do you want us to do? Again and again, we see that these mighty men and women in Hebrews chapter 11 were actually like us. That there is murder in their history. There is adultery in their history. They are laden with sin. Yet they understood something. They understood who you are. 
They understood who they were. And you became the center of their world. We ask that that could happen today to us. We just thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.